welcome, Neil. I don't know about you, Dan, but the most enjoyable part of election night last night, why I don't know if you watched anything on TV or followed it online or anything, but uh. my, my favorite part of the whole evening was Fox News in denial about losing while CNN was telling, trying to explain to everybody why they were wrong in their prediction that there would be a red wave, that Republicans would have this huge win last night. So my favorite part of the whole evening was Fox News in denial and CNN apologizing and trying to figure out what went wrong. What was your favorite part of la about last night? Not wa watching any of the election results? Oh, you had me in suspense just telling me about it. This is the first I've heard about it. I think I checked at 2.45 in the morning. <laughs> what uh, were you doing I up at 2.45? Jolted awake. I was <laughs> having some sort of nightmare. But yeah, they said um, some weed got on the ballot that we're going to be able to unionize here uh, in Illinois. And that sounded pretty good to me. I don't know. But so did uh, the Senate flipped blue? It's going to be blue? I have no idea. I haven't even looked. I, I don't want to look because I know that the real results we won't know for a couple of days anyway. Yeah. So what's the point in like rushing to your TV and watching it? Yeah. What I do know is that in Michigan, they had this Amendment 3 on the ballot that was going to allow for women to have reproductive choice, to have bodily autonomy. And that passed in Michigan, and Michigan's state legislature switched to being Democratic control for the first time in 40 oh, years. Okay. So that's good news. That's good news for all the women I know in Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> truly revolting, this truly revolting radio. <laughs> This is hell, and the potentially revolutionary moment that we will be discussing next is what is taking place in the struggle for democracy in Iran. No, this is not a triumph of Western or U.S.-backed democracy, but part of a centuries-long Iranian debate and discussion about democracy that you can find even in 13th and 14th century writings by Islamic Sufic writers like Rumi and Hafez. Long before there was a United States, or even before Europeans knew about North America, Sufis were writing about challenging the status quo of religious leaders who they saw not acting with piety despite their pious proclamations. Despite what we hear in the States, what we might think about Iran, the nation has had a long history of dissidents, including from women poets like Samin Bebahani, who lived from 1927 to 2014 and wrote pieces challenging both the Shah's monarchy and the post-revolutionary Islamic Republic with words like, my country, I will build you again if need be, with bricks made for my life, I will build columns to support your roof if need be, with my own bones. Sure, they may not align with the stereotype that we have been taught here in the U.S. by U.S. media and politicians about Iran and their willingness of, uh, the willingness of its citizens to blindly follow whatever regime is dominating them or women who are willfully accepting subordination. But those stereotypes, well, are, are just baseless propaganda. Now, following the murder of Masa Jina Amini at the hands of the Islamic Republic's morality police, resistance, always simmering in the background in Iran, has now boiled to the surface. In fact, citizens in the West and U.S. might actually be able to learn something about democracy from Iran's history and current uprising. In a few minutes, we will get the historical, cultural, and so social and societal 
context necessary to understand the current moment in Iran. When we speak with political science scholar Nojang Katami, who posted the Boston Review article, The Lifeblood of Iranian Democracy, from street demonstrations to song, dance, film, and poetry, women are advancing a long legacy of struggle against authoritarianism in Iran. Nojang is a postdoctoral fellow at the Justicia I believe it is, Justitia uh, Center for Advanced Studies at Goethe University, Frankfurt, Germany. Beginning in the fall of 2023, he will be Assistant Professor of Political Science at Fordham University. Congratulations. Nojang teaches and writes on decolonization and democratic theory, and you can follow him on Twitter at Nojang Katami. That's N-O-J-A-N-G-K-H-A-T-A-M-I. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcasting, live streaming, host Chuck Mertz, producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how are you? What's new by you besides we're getting up at 2.45 in the freaking morning? Yeah, I'm doing good. We went to karaoke on Friday. That's Did you? Where? Is at the P.O. Box Collective. It was a, a fundraiser for the Free Store, which is kind of like, you know, food not bombs, but for all the not food, like, you know, dish detergent, other household consumables. It was a lot of fun. And uh, why don't you tell people where the uh, Free Store is? And said, uh, it just moved. It's been moving around. It's yeah. just north of the taste of, or it's just south of the taste of the Peru by uh, Clark and Devon. You go there on Saturdays if you need some dish detergent, soap, that kind of stuff. Um, head on over to just above Clark and Devon, in between Clark and Devon Hardware and Taste of Peru. Get in line, and they're going to help you out. That's fantastic. I know a lot of people who are involved in that, and that's really great work that they're doing. I went out to breakfast last uh, Saturday morning, I think it was, and uh, saw a lot of the free fridges that we have in the neighborhood in West Ridge and in Rogers Park, and I think that's just absolutely fantastic that we... The the refrigerators aren't uh, plugged in to have, you know, frozen food inside, but there's ice packs inside to keep the uh, food cold, and then there's uh, like a, you know, I was going to say a larder, a pantry (laughs) next to it that has a whole bunch of dry goods as well. That's what's going on. I thought the one at least by the honey bear right clark i thought that was plugged in but maybe you know maybe you're more plugged into it no no i i i I just saw the sign that said do not take ice packs outside Ah, of that one so i was wondering if that's what the deal is i don't know uh my week has been annoying because my home is overrun with fruit flies are you getting fruit flies like crazy haven't gotten any fruit flies oh my god it's so irritating uh, they're, they're too small for me to see, but big enough to irritate me, constantly like flying in my face. I thought I had fleas for a while, so I asked the search engine, what can you do to get rid of fruit flies? And as this is not only fruit fly season in my own home, but from what people are telling me on social media, they're bothering everyone everywhere from uh, Maine to Washington. So up if you're up a little bit farther north, you're probably getting fruit flies right now. So in case anyone listening at this point is getting uh, getting pissed off at, as, as I am by swarms of uh, you know, fruit flies, I found this deterrent at the Food Network's website, and it works. It actually works. I've been catching dozens and dozens every day. Fill a microwave-safe bowl with apple cider vinegar and a few drops of dish soap. Microwave the bowl so the mixture becomes even more aromatic. Leave the bowl out uncovered as fruit fly bait. The soap will reduce the surface tension, causing any fruit fly that lands on the surface to drown. We currently have two of these dishes out in our home filled with that mixture, and I'm not kidding you. It really does work. There are so uh, We don't have as many uh, fruit flies in our house at all anymore, so do that And if, if you have fruit flies, and it does work. But more important than my war on fruit flies, Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? 
This week's question from hell is, now that Elon Musk has killed Twitter, how are you wasting your time instead? <laughs> do you spend much time on Twitter? You know, I do. I kind of lurk. I never post, but I do. I doom scroll. Oh, really? A little bit. <laughs> really? I never post anything. I'm a shy guy. I'm a tender little guy. <laughs> you are tender. Yeah. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you... We got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Direct message it to us via loathsome Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, Jeff distills a truth that is not so super about neo-fascism. Coming up, Nojen Katami on the uprising in Iran. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, this week's question from hell is, now that Elon Musk has killed Twitter, how are you wasting your time instead? We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Jeff Dorching, like I said, will be delivering his uh, this week's moment of truth. And we'll tell you what's happening next week here on This Is Hell or Not. Mostly not, and I'll tell you about that in a moment. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell, the killing of Masha Amini at the hands of the Islamic Republic's morality police in Iran has led to a widespread uprising and retaliation by Iran's police. But this uprising is about more than Masa's uh, brutal death. It's about something that has been simmering in the background for uh, centuries in Iran, and that is resistance, especially by Iranian women, against their domination by the state that stretches back hundreds of years. Here, uh, despite what we're being told about Iran here in the West, here to help us have a better understanding of what is taking place in Iran, political science scholar Nojan Katami posted the Boston Review article, The Lifeblood of Iranian Democracy. Nojan is a postdoctoral uh, uh, fellow at the Univers Goethe University in Frankfurt. He, in beginning in the fall of 2023, he will be assistant professor of political science at Fordham. And you can follow Nojan on Twitter at Nojan Katami. First, Nojan, congratulations on your upcoming position at, at uh, Fordham. Hey, thanks so much. And uh, thanks for having me on the program. Great to be here. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, this, Whenever I approach any, we approach any uh, topic like the one that we'll be talking about today, mm -hmm. I, I go with the, and I know I should never assume, but I always go with the assumption that people don't know anything about what's happening in Iran because here in the United States, as you probably know, there's very little international news coverage. So uh, please excuse the naivete some of these questions might have, but you know, I just want to make sure that everybody understands exactly what is happening, no matter their level of knowledge about Iranian politics. So you write, a powerful wave of protests in Iran has shown the world again the resilience of a people fighting against authoritarian government, economic inequality, and gendered violence. The uprisings have continued for over a month and grown to encompass student demonstrations and workers' strikes. 
But women have been at the forefront of the movement since the beginning, triggered by the killing of Masa Jina Amini at the hands of the Islamic government's uh, Islamic Republic's uh, morality police in September. The movement soon mobilized under the chant of Zan Zandagi Azadi, women, life, liberty, and has used social media uh, posts uh, alongside street demonstrations to critique the government's violent apparatuses of control over women's bodies and life choices. So is the movement due to the single act of cruelty or is there more to it? Because far too often the media, as you know, will focus on the single person, trying to make them into a celebrity, especially here in the West, rather than the larger social, cultural, or historical context. Not to downplay the significance of her death, but is this only about Masa Amini or is it about more than her very sad and regrettable death? Right. That's a, that's a great question to start with. And I would say, you know, the, to your point about the sort of perceptions about Iran, its history, its struggles, uh, there is, of course, this kind of, you know, misconception um, in the United States in particular, but in the West more widely, that, you know, these kinds of moments, uh, you know, they seem to be uh, portrayed as somehow, you know, ephemeral, uh, transitory. It's it's just this sort of brief uprising that is then quelled, and uh, it 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 doesn't usually live very long in the historical memory. Uh, a lot of people tend to have short memories when it comes to these things, but uh, for Iranians, including the diaspora, and of course, most importantly, for Iranians in Iran. This is a very long-standing and very multifaceted struggle that uh, absolutely has been, this latest iteration has been triggered uh, by the death of Masa Jina Amini. Uh, but of course, in addition to that, the number of uh, you know, protesters, including young women, young girls, who this has caused protests are continuing uh, for, I mean, close to two months now. And the sort of, I think the important uh, fact to keep in mind as well is that this series of demonstrations, even though it has this extremely important sort of mobilizing uh, force, which is, uh, as you pointed out, it's Zan Zindagi Azadi, right? It's, it's women, life, freedom. That's the sort of iteration of this particular movement. But I do think it's also important to recognize the longer struggle in terms of previous sets of protests, uh, including, you know, to sort of work backwards, uh, 2019 to 2020, there was already a series of very important protests that took place 2017, uh, the 2009 Green Movement, and on and on. And I mean, you can go backwards uh, through time and there, you know, practically every um, 10 years or so before that, there are major uprisings and demonstrations. And so this has been a very long-standing struggle, in particular against the uh, Islamic Republic after it was established in 1979. But uh, again, as you also pointed out, there has been this longer uh, sort of struggle for for democracy under previous regimes as well so that's that's part of the uh, the work that uh, you know me and other uh, academics writing about um, these kinds of uh, 
the movements and issues really uh, try to highlight is that it's not really just this particular moment, but it's a much longer struggle. So why did Masa Amini's death strike such a chord with Iranians? Was it something about her or was it something about the cruelty in her death? Yeah, I, I would say it's in part absolutely because of uh, the circumstances of her death, the cruelty behind it, the fact that she was, you know, brutalized in that way. And uh, the images that were shared, of course, on social media in her in her final hours, um, it's just it's heart wrenching. Right. And so a, a lot of people, when they saw those images and heard about the story, they were absolutely incensed. And this led to so many people very quickly mobilizing and, uh, you know, getting out into the streets uh, to, to, to protest this injustice. But in addition to that, again, I would say, you know, it, it, it's, of course, uh, not only uh, Masa Amini, as, as important as uh, it is to continue to, you know, honor her memory and, uh, you know, what the, the circumstances of her death, but it's, of course, countless uh, women before and after her who have been brutalized in this way. Um, you know, I mean, there are many examples that come to mind. One of the most prominent is uh, during the 2009 uh, Green Movement protests, uh, a woman by the name of Neda Sultan, uh, you know, she was uh, shot in the chest during the protests, and there were these, you know, viral uh, videos of her, her death, her last moments. And that was, again, something that uh, for Iranians in particular, it's very much stuck in the in the in the historical memory and really comes to exemplify the 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 brutality of this particular regime. In addition to that, I would also say, uh, you know, this has been a longstanding uh, women's issue, and and the fact that uh, Masa Amini was killed in this way, it really uh, you know incited women in particular. Uh, to speak out, uh, you know, maybe most uh, louder, most loudly than ever, uh, I would say, in, in terms of like Iranian history, um, particularly because they have been subjected to these um, unjust and unequal laws that have, you know, uh, various mandates, including not only the veil, but also control over their bodies. This has been, uh, of course, going on for, for several decades. And so it's it's this kind of combination of things, right? It's that sort of visceral um, experience of actually seeing, for instance, uh, Masa Amini's final moments, but it's also the fact that it sort of comes to represent and to, to, to exemplify um, exactly what women have been facing for so long. And this is what I think, you know, has uh, really incited them to, to to get out there and be more vocal. So how much is this uprising then about questioning the morality of the morality police? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, um, the, the so-called notion of the uh, the morality police, and actually this uh, the the term for it is gash the airshot. And uh, so it's not... Uh, it's not always the best sort of uh, translation that we're given in English, but I mean, more appropriately, this is supposed to be a so-called guidance patrol. And the the particular form of guidance that they're supposed to be providing is uh, in this very narrow set of uh, is purportedly Islamic values, um, which is, you know, showing modesty in, in one's appearance 
And uh, of course, when it comes to, to veiling, um, you know, not showing too much hair in, uh, in this instance, uh, the way that makeup is applied, this kind of stuff. And this, this notion of the so-called morality police and this, this, this guidance patrol, um, this has been something that since the uh, beginning of the, uh, the, the establishment of the uh, Islamic Republic after the 1979 revolution, um, in that sort of formative year, there was this heavy emphasis by people like Khomeini, who was the sort of, you know, uh, recognized leader of the revolution, but also uh, many others uh, working within that government, that this revolution needed to preserve this, again, very narrow set of uh, Islamic values. But this is, of course, a very particular interpretation of Islam and morality under it. There are all kinds of other ways of thinking about and interpreting Islam, including among many Iranians who don't abide by these kinds of principles, right? They don't necessarily agree that this is how Islam should be interpreted. And so that's also what is really at stake here. It's a, it's a question of interpretation and, uh, you know, orientation, one's uh, lifestyle choices, uh, one's bodily autonomy, all of these things um, are really at stake. And the, the main thing I think to, to stress is that it is, uh, you know, there are these efforts by the state, by the regime to have this sort of top-down form of morality by dictating uh, the, the sorts of choices that women are supposed to be making. But what I think we're seeing is this real swell of uh, dissent and resistance against that to say, no, this is not, this is not our notion of morality. Um, and this is not our version of Islam. Uh, and so there, there are all kinds of other ways to, to think about this. And so it's, it's that, uh, that, that notion of morality that is uh, really being challenged, I think, by the people. I was about to ask you if all uh, or if Islamic values are universal to all Muslims, and you pretty much just answered that question. But what do we miss in our understanding of Iran or of Islam when we do view Islam as something that is monolithic? This is a conversation mm -hmm. we have had with African Americans uh, and uh, people who are fighting for black freedom when it comes to the uh, African American vote and African American political mm -hmm. ideals, that these, these are clearly not uh, monolithic. It's the same when you look to the LGBTQI community. It's the same thing when you come to look at the Hispanic community. What do we mm -hmm. miss in the understanding of Islam and Iran when we view Islam as monolithic. Mm, that, that's great. I'm glad you asked that because, uh, you know, this goes back to that. Uh, and I think uh, off the top, when, when you sort of introduce things, um, you mentioned that there has been this kind of uh, sort of uh, longstanding sort of debate and, uh, you know, struggle over interpretations going uh, several centuries back. And uh, so to, you know, to begin to answer your question, I want to go back um, to, to those moments because this is a really sort of formative and important period in the in the, in the contestations over the meanings of Islam. So, uh, for instance, um, you know, in my article, I go back to Sufi poets like Rumi and Hafez. And the reason I think they're particularly important, and of course, they're not the only ones who are representative of this, but I think what they really, um, you know, represent and symbolize is this other way of thinking about Islam. So, I mean, Sufism 
uh, is in, in a sense, it's another way of thinking about Islam that goes against the kind of orthodox uh, interpretations. So, uh, so you know, just to, I guess, to give a really brief sort of historical overview of it, uh, you know, in the sort of formative periods of uh, Islam and, you know, the, the, the spread of Islam up until the uh, 13th and 14th centuries, there were these attempts to really sort of solidify what Islam is supposed to be according to the interpretation of a certain set of uh, jurists, these, these so-called doctors of religion, as uh, they're sometimes called, uh, who claim to have these kinds of authoritative interpretations of the Quran and of the Hadith, which is the sort of the, the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad and so on. And they claim to truly understand uh, Islam and to, to say that this is their interpretation, their sort of orthodox interpretation is what it is, it's meant to represent. And against that, you have this very different, and of course, again, there are several different uh, sort of branches of this, but in particular, the Sufi poets who come in and challenge that, and, and they challenge particular precepts and notions of what is supposed to be Islamic, what is considered rightly Islamic. So just to give one instance, and this is something that really comes across in their poetry, uh, when it comes to things like uh, drinking, in particular wine drinking, uh, so, I mean, alcohol is supposed to be uh, prohibited in Islam, right? But then you get uh, poets like uh, Rumi, and of course, he wasn't the only one, but, uh, you know, he comes through and, and begins writing this, you know, incredible sort of ecstatic uh, poetry that is about connecting to others, that is about this notion of community and dialogue with one another. And this metaphor of wine drinking becomes a kind of pathway into having this, uh, this sort of uh, broader set of connections, this, this, these deep and intimate connections to, to others. And a lot of times it's actually quite erotic. And uh, again, what some may perceive as like, uh, you know, blasphemous or going against those uh, sort of rigid precepts of that, that other version of Islam. And yet it's still... Islamic in a sense, right? That is, it's a different way of thinking about Islam and saying that, you know, this is uh, another way to, to interpret um, how, you know, one's sort of ethical comportment and uh, how one should sort of behave in the world. And so this sets off a very uh, long tradition of, uh, again, as the, the way that I characterize it is as a kind of resistance against uh, the sort of more rigid understandings of Islam. And um, this is something that has continued up until the present day because uh, ordinary Iranians, uh, again, within Iran, but also among the diaspora, continue to read these poets and uh, they go back to these texts, they recite them quite often. You know, you actually memorize uh, their lines from childhood. So they're very deeply embedded in uh, Iranians' consciousness. And, you know, my point is that this is the kind of thing that really uh, allows that kind of resistance to, to, to simmer um, below the surface because uh, it's, it's the same sort of uh, set of challenges that I think we're, we're witnessing today. It's just really uh, coming out into the fore, coming in, you know, uh, above the surface. Well, so why now? And when it comes to fundamentalism, when it comes to orthodoxy, 
Why do you think that it, there, it's so attractive when it comes to Islam and Iran, when it comes to what is taking place right now within the Israeli government and the new very orthodox uh, government that is taking place there with the win of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu here in the United mm-hmm. States with white Christian nationalism? What do you think is the attraction, no matter the religion, to this fundamentalism and orthodoxy? Well, I, you know, the way I think of it is that it, it sort of provides uh, that way of thinking. It just provides sort of simple answers. And uh, perhaps the, the attraction is that, you know, it, it gives you an easy answer and it tells you, you know, this is the way to, uh, say, interpret um, this, this, this notion of, say, religion. Um, this is uh, these people, whoever they may be, are the enemy. Uh, while we sort of, you know, uh, we represent sort of like a, a, a community that stands against this uh, sort of common enemy. I would say that that's one of the underlying or, you know, one of the common denominators in uh, these these sorts of interpretations, especially of religion and like these, these uses of Islamic fundamentalism. And Iran in particular is uh, you know, the, this has been a very sort of stubborn and uh, sort of persistent part in Iranian politics since the Islamic Revolution, because in many ways that that's what the uh, those who, you know, in a sense, hijacked the revolution, uh, you know, Khomeini and his, his followers and those who uh, then went up and set up the constitution according to their vision of uh, political Islam. Uh, for them, I think it was important to, to, to establish this way of thinking about religion in relation to politics, because it allowed them to dictate and to tell people and to try to control people's behavior and to preserve what they came to see as the sort of the spirit of the revolution. And this ended up being, you know, uh, a, a very uh, again, you know, resilient and uh, very stubborn uh, form of authoritarianism because it, it it combines that kind of simplistic way of thinking about religion and uh, politicizing it and using that more than anything else for domination and control, which is what they've been doing for you know over four decades now. Uh, and and again, I, I would really stress though that it's despite their best efforts people have not bought into that, especially young people, uh, especially this, you know, this, this latest generation, the, the people that we see protesting um, on the streets uh, for, for well over a decade now, um, they don't buy into that narrative, that, that sort of master narrative or that, that, that notion of uh, fundamentalism or orthodoxy that, that the regime has continued to try to preach. Um, and again, that's, that's where the real, you know, uh, the, the the front is in this in the, in this kind of struggle is um, between those who are continually trying to preserve that kind of fundamentalist notion and the the majority of people um, in Iran who just don't buy into that and 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 who refuse to accept it. 
So what do we miss in our understanding of the re- 1979 revolution when you were just saying that Khomeini and uh, his uh, colleagues, they uh, hijacked this revolution? The way that we are taught about the, or our media tells us about the Iranian revolution of 1979 is this was always about Khomeini. This wasn't about uh, some, this wasn't Khomeini uh, hijacking the revolution. This is what the revolution was all about. And it seems in the way that it's presented here in the United States and in the West, that this is what something that everybody supported, that everybody wanted Khomeini to be, hi, not hijacking, but to be part of and the heart of that revolution. What do we miss in our understanding when we don't understand, we don't see that this is something that was hijacked and not something that was its original intent? Mm, right. That's it, it, that's great because I think it's important to uh, highlight something that is, uh, I think, less known and less appreciated about the, you know, what led to the revolution, which is that, okay, so absolutely Khomeini, you know, had for uh, quite a long time, at, at least as early as 1963, 1964, when he, you know, took part in a series of uprisings against the Shah. So, of course, you know, Iran was for, um uh, close to three decades uh, was uh, a monarchy. And so under the Shah, you had all of these different groups that were uh, resisting this, this sort of uh, dictatorial form of monarchy in, in various ways. So it happened to be that, you know, Khomeini's group, uh, when, when it really became ascendant, especially in uh, the, the late 1970s, uh, especially leading up just to the you know, a few years before the 1979 revolution, a lot of people started to rally around Khomeini. So it's absolutely true that he was a central figure and uh, he had a very large following. But what is often missed in the discussions of this and what is, uh, I think, less appreciated is the fact that you had numerous uh, I would say even countless, uh, you know, leftist groups, including guerrilla groups, uh, various Marxist uh, factions, and uh, so this includes, you know, there uh, there was the uh, Fadai, uh, there's the Mojahideen Khal, there were uh, there was the Marxist Mojahideen, various groups that uh, you know tried to use uh, quite often guerrilla tactics against the uh, the regime of the Shah against the monarchy. And many of them, you know, they had their own sort of ideologies and they had their own vision of how to try to topple the monarchy and how to institute a new government. But what ends up happening is that especially uh, in the late 1970s, uh, particularly after 1977, Khomeini really starts to uh, solidify uh, his position. And, and, and he was also uh, in exile for, for quite a long time. And he stayed um, uh, for a long time in Iraq. And uh, just before the, the revolution, he was in uh, in France at a place called Neuf-le-Chateau. And uh, he was sending all of these messages back to Iran and trying to mobilize people and trying to get people behind his particular vision of an Islamic government to come. And so there was this almost sort of messianic uh, dimension to what he was doing. And a lot of people were quite taken with that. They were almost enraptured by that. You know, there are these uh, images of him returning to Iran from exile. And uh, he sort of, you know, when he arrives, he's whisked away in this uh, helicopter to this massive sort of, uh, you know, very fervent uh, crowd of people. And he's received in this way 
right around the same time that people are mobilizing and seizing guns and arms from the barracks in order to, uh, you know, to uh, sort of really ferment their, their vision of the revolution. So it all really crystallized in these kinds of moments. And people came to uh, accept uh, those that, you know, uh, followed this, this particular vision of revolution. They came to accept Khomeini as the leader. Um, but of course, it didn't happen overnight. Uh, it took, you know, uh, quite a while for these different groups to come together and to try to uh, each give their own vision of, you know, what the, the new revolutionary government should be. But it happened to be the case that Khomeini, by that point, had quite a bit of support and was also very organized relative to these other groups. And so when it came to writing the constitution, which is the basically, you know, the, the most important aspects of it uh, or the most sort of um, stubborn sort of uh, aspects of it that still remain to this day, Khomeini instituted this notion of uh, what's called velayat fari, which is the notion of the guardianship of the Islamic jurist. And so this is a, a, a part of the constitution that basically says that the Islamic jurist, uh, someone like Khomeini himself, who is like an Ayatollah, uh, gets to have the final say in practically all matters. And that's why he's appointed, you know, and has this title of supreme leader. And so this is the kind of thing that, you know, it, it created this sort of version of a constitution that was not in line with the vision of what many others uh, had been hoping for in, in, in helping to uh, make the revolution happen. So it's in that sense that, you know, that that's the way that I characterize it. I would say that in a sense, um, the revolution was hijacked um, because it's, it, you know, he really, sort of took advantage of, of the situation and, and used all of these, uh, you know, resources and, and, and his following um, to ensure that it ended up being sort of his and his followers' version of what the, the revolutionary government should be. We are speaking with Nojan Katami, who posted the Boston Review article, The Lifeblood of Iranian Democracy. So let's go back to the Sufi poets. You write how Sufi poets have always exuded a spirit of rebellion. As you were saying earlier, extolling intoxication and self-questioning as ways to better understand truth and ethical comportment. They articulate a sense of agency that has long defied rigid norms imposed by authorities. So what is the uh, relationship of Sufis to the current government? And are Sufis, no matter the government, whether it was the monarchy or post-revolution Iran, uh, are they always in rebellion? What is the relationship that they have with governments? And are they always in rebellion? Mm, Yeah, I I mean, so (laughs) this gets at a sort of question of, um, I guess, you know, the uh, identity and uh, the the terms that we might use to uh, identify or, or or how people themselves identify. So, I personally I don't uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that like Sufism per se as a kind of you know in, in this kind of very organized way uh, or representing a, a kind of uh, particular like political group. Um, it's not that uh, Sufism has this kind of uh, presence in, in in this more kind of organized way, but rather, I think it's very much the 
sort of interpretations behind Sufism and the, the ways in which it's, it's very much bound up with how people in Iran uh, sort of come to be educated. So for me, it's very much, I think, in the sort of cultural and the, the ethical sphere more than the sort of explicitly political one. So what I mean by that is, uh, for instance, when it comes to uh, the Sufi poets who continue to be read, a lot of times this happens, you know, within homes, right? So again, you're brought up uh, reading and memorizing and reciting um, these kinds of lines from, and of course, it's not just Rumi and Hafez, but it's a it's it's a very large sort of Persianate uh, literary imaginary that um, is very much a part of um, education in um, in ethics. I would say in Iran, um, I mean, it's interesting. I think that. Uh, the way that uh, in, in Farsi, for instance, the way that we define uh, ethics and how one should behave, um, the word that we have for literature, which is adabiyat, and uh, the, the notion of adab is very much embedded in that. So it's, it's as if like, you know, ethics and literary education are practically or like almost synonymous, right? They go very much hand in hand. So I would say the significance of this is that a lot of people, again, they grow up with and they continue to go back to these writers, these poets who are very much a part of their consciousness and also who they give them a way of thinking about how to behave in the world. And so when they have this kind of very, uh, you know, uh, intransigent, this this kind of rebellious kind of spirit, uh, they then pass that on to their readers, right? And so, and then this kind of thing percolates uh, within society and it becomes a topic of uh, discussion and of conversation. You know, people get together to, to talk about the uh, their interpretations of these poets and how they can apply them to daily life. And again, I would argue that, that one of the ways that they apply them the, to their daily lives is to use the, the message that, uh, that that kind of rebellious spirit behind um, this poetry to critique the, the established norms and the, the, the status quo of the Islamic Republic. So, so uh, yes. No, go ahead. Oh, no. So, so that's that's just to say that it's, it, it's just a very uh, sort of uh, cultural and uh, sort of literary, um, I think, form of education, um, as opposed to an explicitly political one. That's just the main thing I wanted to emphasize. If this poetic dissidence is allowed, what does that say about, what should that reveal to us about dissent in Iran historically, despite having regimes like those of the Shah, the monarchy, as well as post-revolutionary Iran, which are seen as, let's say, you know, less than tolerant. So what should this poetic uh, dissidence reveal to us about the historic dissent that exists within Iran, whether it's during the monarchy, whether it's during post-revolutionary Iran, or even before either? Hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, I would say that the difference now uh, under this regime compared to under the monarchy is that there's a so there's a religious dimension to these uh, these Sufi writings, right? So uh, again, they're sort of espousing a different view of religion. 
So I would say that, uh, say, compared to under the monarchy, um, the sort of more recent interpretations of and uses of this kind of poetry, like it's especially apt uh, under this present regime, because again, the stakes involve this interpretation of religion, right? Whereas under the Shah, uh, and again, this is this is also a sort of um, historical point and uh, for, for historical context, um, under the Shah, the forms of rebellion that that you saw, you know, to, to go back to the uh, the various sort of leftist groups that I mentioned earlier, under the Shah, it was this kind of, uh, you know, when you had these uprisings or these uh, anti-government acts sort of flare up, it was kind of in that more revolutionary and uh, the sort of, you know, praxis oriented sort of way, uh, including, you know, actual armed struggle and, uh, you know, guerrilla tactics to try to attack uh, the, um, the various uh, sort of mechanisms of, uh, of the state under the Shah. Um, whereas, and, and again, that's, that's a product, I think, and, and important to contextualize, uh, that's especially a product of the 1960s and the 1970s in terms of the sort of internationalist uh, movements, uh, the fact that Iranians around that time, especially the ones who were, you know, increasingly mounting this kind of radical uh, critique of the Shah and taking actions against him, many of them were inspired by these other sort of global and internationalist uh, dimensions of dissent and of resistance. So they were looking to, to places like Algeria, to uh, Cuba, they were looking to uh, sort of Maoist uh, guerrilla tactics, and so on. And so it's uh, the the forms of dissent now are different because, well, you know, the times have changed in part, but also because, again, to go back to that other point, um, the fact that this is a much more, I think, subtle uh, form of cultural shift that people are trying to, to bring about. So it's no longer this kind of, you know, these attempts at, uh, you know, guerrilla tactics and armed struggle, but rather this kind of slower change. And uh, that I think comes through poetry, through uh, this, these, these kinds of more literary and cultural aspects of, of present day Iran. Well, let's talk about that cultural shift for a moment. You write that while it is too early to tell the outcome, the events of the past month constitute a historic moment in the Iranian people's struggle for freedom from domination. Anyone committed to democracy has something to learn from the demands and creative forms of contention used by Iranian dissidents. Perhaps most notably, the protests include an explicit call for a cultural shift along demands for democratic institutions. How effective do you think protests can be for greater democracy or uh, against inequality without demanding a cultural shift? Yeah, uh, so I mean, my take on this is, and and I'm personally, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly inclined toward the um, the the cultural view. Uh, so you know, looking at this at, from a sort of comparative perspective, I my take is that w- when it comes to uh, establishing and trying to grow these kinds of roots for democracy, I personally think that it has to be rooted in resistance. Originally, I think that democracy, in order for it to be meaningful and for it to be able to thrive over time 
it has to grow these kinds of deep roots uh, within the culture. And I think that when it comes to protest and resistance, these are ways of expressing those kinds of desires and for really constituting this sort of collective memory uh, among the populace to say, you know, one, we're not going to forget these moments, these, uh, these acts of brutality by the regime, we're going to make our voice heard, right? And so that to me is a deeply democratic way of thinking and of beginning, right? I think it's, it's the sort of uh, very sort of incipient and early moments of democracy because of, you know, given the actual structure of the regime and of the government, it's, of course, democracy is not really institutionalized, right? So they're not, uh, you know, the people fighting for democracy, they're not quite at that stage yet of being able to institutionalize it. But what they are able to do and what I think they have been doing is creating this kind of organic growth or I would say, you know, creating the conditions for an organic form of democracy to really take root. And I think it's by their daily acts of resistance, uh, the various ways in which they make their voices heard, they, you know, using their bodies by actually putting their bodies on the line, being out there in the streets um, and marching and chanting and dancing, all of these kinds of things are ways, I think, for them to establish democracy on their own terms and not according to, you know, a set of ideas that can somehow be imported uh, from the outside or from the West, um, even though, of course, there are many, uh, especially young, educated people uh, in Iran who know about and have access to, you know, ideas about democracy and democratic theory uh, from outside Iran. Uh, and yet what they're demonstrating more than anything else is that they want to enact and to create democracy on their own terms. On the importation of Western democratic ideals, you write, for some it may be tempting to narrate this moment as the inevitable triumph of Western liberal democratic norms over religious fundamentalism and stubborn authoritarianism. The reality of the Iranian people's strivings is more nuanced. The concerted effort to expand the category of quote unquote, the people, is not a call for regime change catalyzed by foreign governments or for the exportation of a particular brand of liberal democracy. It is an organic movement that continues to define its democratic ambitions through each act of resistance, each instance of imagining governance otherwise. And you were talking about how, you know, yes, the, there are considerations of Western democratic ideals, but here, and you also mentioned how uh, the Iranian democratic movement that is happening right now, there's something that the West could learn from that. Yet it seems like while Iranians will are open to learning about other ideals of democracy here in the United States, we aren't open to those other ideals of democracy. We won't even view uh, Iran as being democratic unless it is the democracy that the United States would impose upon them. There are those who criticize any uprising against a government the U.S. or the West does not support as a victory for Western liberal democracy, or that it must be influenced by Western governments and their intelligence agencies. Why do you see this as neither? Mm, yeah. Uh, well, for two reasons, I would say. One is that there's this kind of uh, I think as as you're really nicely sort of getting at, 
this tendency to view things uh, in, you know, among many in, in the United States from this particular lens of like, this is how it has to be, right? That this is uh, that our version of liberal democratic norms, I mean, this is uh, what is needed. And also that you, you need to have this form of almost uh, intervention or interference in order to, to make it happen, right? Um, one reason that I think this is especially problematic is uh, if, if we look at another historical moment that hasn't been brought up yet, but is extremely important in the, uh, again, the historical memory of Iranians, is that Iran did have its own version of a democratic government up until 1953, when there was a CIA orchestrated coup to remove the democratically elected uh, Mohammad Mossadegh, uh, particularly because his vision was not in line with and in, and in keeping with uh, what the United States expected uh, Iran to be. And so, you know, he was removed from power and that's how you get to the monarchy and, uh, you know, the uh, sort of appointment of the Shah and just years and decades of dictatorship. Um, so that's that's one thing that is often, I think, forgotten or at least, you know, um, it's not really as uh, prominent or as well known, but, uh, you know, quite a few people, a lot of Iranians um, remember that and they, you know, are very wary of this notion of foreign intervention. And of course, it, you, obviously, it's, you know, far from uh, being like the exception to the rule, knowing everything that we know about U.S. imperialism, especially um, throughout the mid to, uh, you know, the, the mid 20th century onward. Um, this is not something that uh, Iranians today would want to go back to uh, this, this, this notion that you can have another government sort of uh, determine your, you know, uh, your sovereignty and your, uh, your vision of, of what your nation should be. And so uh, th that's, the main reason I would say that, you know, Iranians today are trying more than ever to enact and to uh, to create their own notion, their own vision of, of democracy is uh, they are very well attuned to and aware of um, these sort of historical precedents. And that's why I think they're quite insistent on making this happen on their own terms and uh, according to their own vision of, of what democracy should look like. And you write that the Sufi poets Rumi and Hafez are only two figures in a rich tradition of Persian poetry opposed to rigid understandings of Islam and political authority. Recent studies have offered illuminating accounts of how Iranian women use this poetry to contest gendered exclusions and inequalities on their own terms. They stand as fresh reminders of how poetry has weaved its way into the private and public life to sustain forms of democratic dissent, rumbling below the surface of everyday life in Iran. Often when we hear about dissent rumbling below the surface as a kind of background noise waiting to be released and broadcast loudly, as happened with the Arab Spring, revolution seems inevitably unavoidable, no matter how long that may take. Does this form of dissent necessarily mean a revolutionary moment is always possible in Iran, no matter the leadership? Yeah, I, so this is uh, always a very difficult question to, to answer. And I, I want to say for my part, I'm very hopeful of, you know, from everything that I've 
seen and experienced, uh, you know, as uh, as someone you know born and uh, partly grown up in Iran, uh, and then being sort of outside of Iran for so many years. Uh, and and of course, it's not just among the the diaspora, but from what you see uh, daily from the Iranian people themselves, I think if you really listen and and, and look at what they're um, trying to achieve, many do perceive it as a, a revolutionary moment, right? And the the hope for a revolution is very much there, and it's they're trying to make it happen. But the the reason this is sort of a fraught and uh, sort of sensitive question is that because we have had these kinds of revolutions in the past and the memory of the 1979 revolution in particular, there's, uh, you know, at, at, at the very least, a kind of apprehension about labeling it or uh, thinking of it as a, a, as a revolution on the same scale as, say, 1978, 1979. Um, Again, in part because of the uh, the, the, the violence uh, also that was very much imbricated in that, the fact that, uh, you know, this, this these sort of post-revolutionary moments uh, quite often, you know, depending on the kind of revolution that, you know, the that they're pursuing, um, it can lead to, uh, you know, the, a, a moment of, of, of great violence, right? And... Uh, uh, the potential sort of power grab to come out of that. And so that's why it's, I think, very difficult to, to narrate it as a revolution, um, even though there are, of course, revolutionary dimensions to it. But I, I think, and again, this, the, there are very different takes. There's, there's no sort of authoritative position on this, but um I think that the at the very least the the challenging of the the laws and legal norms, including those kinds of things that are in the constitution that are trying to that that practically you know undermine the pre, the people's sovereignty and their agency, um, those things I think are first and foremost at stake, and uh, for it to be uh, anything like a sort of meaningful and genuine kind of change those things have to be changed. And we can, I think, even think of that as a potential revolutionary act, right, of, of changing the constitution. Um, and I'll also just wanna add, there's uh, recently, very recently, you know, since after the time that I wrote the article, there've been these calls uh, from within Iran, including among a sort of prominent uh, clerics, uh, trying to call for a referendum and saying that, you know, one of the ways to try to resolve this is to really allow the people to have their voices heard and again to potentially uh, change the constitution right to decide whether they want the constitution to remain as it is and of course the immediate reaction to that by the state is you know that this is for them this is considered impossible but given the fact that it's a real moment of reckoning uh, given the pressure against the regime at some point uh, as I think of it, at, at some point, something has to give, right? Uh, when, when there are so many challenges to the legitimacy of the regime, um, at some point, they have to consider this potential revolutionary act of, you know, either changing the constitution or of making uh, changes to these, these laws that 
are unjust and that have been, you know, used to, to dominate the, the Iranian people um, for such a long time. So I think that at some point that change has to come. You write that in addition to the important Iranian and Persian literature that takes an explicitly political focus to understand struggles like that of Iran, attention to the wider sphere of culture can be useful for perceiving democracy in action, even when efforts within that sphere aren't nominally labeled democratic by the agents who carry them out. This kind of study can also add to insights in Western democratic theory, which has had a lot to say about conceptions of autonomy, like Kant's, uh, but much less about manifestations of democratic agency and struggles against oppression and injustice outside of the West. In this other view, democracy is born out of and maintained through resistance. Do you see that sense of resistance missing in Western and U.S. democracy? And to you, what happens, more importantly, what happens to democracy when that resistance is not present? Hmm. Yeah, that's it's, it's important, I think, to, uh, to make that kind of comparison. Uh, to me, you know, when I think of the way that I approach uh, these questions within democratic theory, I think of resistance as really crucial, uh, especially, and not only in the early stages of establishing a democracy, but, you know, the the reason I think, or, you know, call it as in the the title of the article, I think of it as the kind of lifeblood of democracy in the sense that without that, without this continual resistance, without this kind of consciousness among the people themselves, you're not really going to have, uh, you know, this this meaningful uh, notion of of democracy or an actual, you know, uh, meaningful version of democracy in practice. Uh, and this is absolutely, I'd say that in the case of the United States as well, with so many of these uh, uh, social movements and uh, series of protests, um, particularly, you know, in this century. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement, the uh, you know the, the the protests against Wall Street, all of these uh, different iterations of of resistance. Um, this is what really keeps democracy alive, in a sense, right? Because uh, without that, you get complacency and you get this sense of um, you know acquiescence to to the status quo. And uh, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I think really uh, causes democracy to, to potentially, you know, become rigid and um, to, you know, to have the potential for uh, this kind of backsliding. And so it's the, the, I, I, I think of it as a kind of parallel. Um, and I would say that the case of Iran, uh, especially um, in these past two months or so, um, really demonstrate that these moments of resistance are crucial in the sort of early stages of like the possible development of democracy, but they have to be preserved and they have to be maintained and cultivated. Uh, because without that, as I see it, I don't think you really can maintain a democracy at all. So is that what we can learn, whether we're in the West, anywhere in the West or in the United States, about the meaning of democracy from Iranian uh, expressions of democracy especially in their day-to-day lives, even in the, uh, you know, in the West and uh, in the U.S., is that is that what we can learn, that, that democracy needs constant resistance in order to grow and to flourish? I would say so. I, I, and, and again, I think that's, that's how I think of democracy, right, is that uh, 
of course, the sort of institutional aspects of it, the electoral aspects of it, right? Maintaining free and open elections, all of these things are crucial in the sort of structures of, of democracy, right? But the sort of more, what to some may seem a kind of more intangible aspect of it, and uh, what I think receives less attention relatively um, in the literature and like in democratic theory, of course, there are exceptions to this. But um, for the most part, I think there has been this, uh, you know, lack of appreciation for how important these acts of resistance and these modes of expression that allow the people to, to speak on their own terms, to challenge unjust norms, um, just how important these kinds of things are for, for maintaining democracy. And yeah, you know, so much of this does happen in the realm of culture. A lot of it is, you know, through these kinds of aesthetic expressions, kind of more widely construed, right? So like, you know, not only sort of uh, cultural um, dimensions of like, you know, literature, film, and arts, but also this, this aesthetic experience of protest, this actual presence in the streets, right? Making one's presence felt this, this kind of publicity to say, you know, we are the people. Uh, constituting the people and like reconstituting it constantly so that you're including or, or you're trying to be aware of those who have been left out or those who have been marginalized. Um, to me, you know, I don't think you can have any meaningful notion of democracy without that kind of agency uh, being displayed by people through these acts of resistance and through these kind of more cultural and uh, aesthetic modes. We have been speaking with political science scholar Nojan Katami, who posted the Boston Review article, The Lifeblood of Iranian Democracy. From street demonstrations to song, dance, film, and poetry, women are advancing a long legacy of struggle against authoritarianism in Iran. And again, as we often do on this show, uh, we just scratch the surface of uh, Nojang's writing. And so you should definitely go and get the bigger cultural understanding, uh, the artistic understanding of what is happening within the movement for democracy that is happening in Iran today. Definitely go check out his article at Boston Review. You can uh, follow Nojang on Twitter at Nojang Katami. One last question for you, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we we call the question from hell, the question you may hate to, uh, we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. We have had so many people on our show dating back to, you know, the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan, uh, that the United States, by using force, by uh, imposing democracy on other countries through the barrel of a gun, that that might undermine the concept of democracy globally, that democracy might be seen as something that the United States, that the United States democracy is the only kind of democracy. If Iranians do not want Western-style democracy, U.S.-style democracy, do they view Western democracy as democratic? Because Western democracy under neoliberalism states that the only way to true freedom is through free markets, not through democracy. And certainly we know that free markets do not act in a democratic way. So do Iranians view Western democracy? And do you think globally other democratic movements view the United States as democratic? <laughs> um, yeah, I no, I don't think that... Uh... 
Iranians in particular, I, I don't think they have this sort of uh, this this taste or this desire for that very specific or like particular brand of, of democracy. Um, again, just given the previous experiences, the the historical memory, this notion of, uh, you know, this, this kind of foreign intervention or having uh, these kinds of um, norms or these 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 versions uh, of democracy being imported, um, being brought in from the outside. Uh, I don't see them as fighting for that. When you see them in the streets, when you see them protesting in the way that uh, they they continue to demonstrate, and through all of these different articulations of their desires. Uh, they're not calling for America to, to come and save them. They're not asking America to come and give them their version of, of democracy. Um, and, th and that's really why I, I emphasize the point that they're doing this on their own terms. And I think if we really listen to the, the narratives, if we look at the kinds of things that they say and enact, um, I think we really have to believe them, right? That uh, this is their vision it's it's their notion of what they want democracy to be and it's not that sort of neoliberal sort of conception uh that is supposed to be imported from the outside thank you so much for being on our show and we would be more than honored to have you back on again because this is fascinating writing and as i was telling what i was saying earlier we haven't even gotten into a lot of the points that you make in your article. So thank you so much for being on the show. And again, we'd be honored to have you back on. Hey, thank you so much. This was fantastic. I would love to come back. And also really quickly want to say for anyone who's uh, who may take the time to go through that article, I also just want to give a shout out to like all of the other uh, you know, brilliant scholars who have been working on this issue. And if you were to, you know, uh, the article has these hyperlinks to, to other people's work who have been commenting and uh, writing about these issues. So I highly recommend, you know, checking out some of those sources as well for, for further insights. Thank you so much. And I appreciate that context. Uh, take care. Enjoy the rest of your week. And uh, again, we will annoy you an email to have you back on the show. <laughs> Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure. All right. Take care. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If what you just heard from Nojan Khatami about the democratic struggle for democracy by Iranian women, if that in some way enlightened you or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding, like that Iran is completely anti-democratic or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support dan please remind us what is this week's question from hell and do we have any new responses from our listening audience this week's question from hell is now that elon musk has killed twitter.com how are you wasting your time instead we've had three new responses sweet we got tynan s and he replies rereading richard seymour's book that would be the Twittering machine, which was we did an interview with him about that book back in 2019. And if you look, uh, search on his last name, Seymour, you'll find that interview. It was really fantastic and very prescient of our times. Well, that's appropriate then. And good recall, Chuck. Thank you. Kim G answers cutting my split ends. And finally, <laughs> our own Jeff Dorchin 
replies, setting up a parody Elon Musk Twitter account and using it to drive the thin-skinned gas bag insane. <laughs> Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell, and if you want us to climb, want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast. Again, patreon.com slash this is hell on Thursday's Patreon. We started this week by speaking with political science scholar Liliana Mason, who is co-author of Radical American Partisanship, Mapping Violent Hostility, Its Causes and the Consequences for Democracy. Liliana and her co-author, political communications professor Paul Calmo, uh, they find the roots of radical political partisanism that can lead to not only violence, but will likely be ruining your upcoming Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, it, they find those roots in aggressive personality traits, strong partisan attachments, and most of all the alignment of partisanship with the party's social identities and group attitudes. People whose identity is being a member of a political party are the ones who are most likely to agree with whoever that party's leader is and their party's platform and will echo it immediately, believing that that is all of a sudden their identity. If the president says it's true and the party does too, well, that's good enough for them and there's no real reason to question what they say. It's kind of like having the Pope read the Bible for you so you don't have to. As a Roman Catholic, I know all about that. It's like identifying as a fan of a sports team or as someone who likes a certain kind of music or a certain kind of fashion. So this week on Patreon, I will do what I think we all should step back and do every so often. And I only thought of this because of Liliana and Paul's writing. And that is consider what my social identity is, what it's bound up in, and the group I most identify with in this world where we are flooded with propaganda that insists we brand ourselves, we market ourselves, and we commodify ourselves. Also on Patreon... I thought it would be fun to see what we were doing 20 years ago on the show. And what I found was an interview that we did two days before Veterans Day, November 9th, 2002, 20 years ago today. And I found an interview with a veteran. But it's not the kind of nationalistic pro-war veteran you'll be hearing a lot from this coming Veterans Day, as we hear every Veterans Day when all the TV channels is just completely filled with pro-war movies. Instead, back then, only five months before the launch of the illegal invasion and occupation of Iraq, a war we were lied into by the Bush administration, we spoke with David Klein, national president of Vietnam Veterans for Peace, who was a disabled combat veteran. David was very much opposed to the upcoming wars during a time the media was calling a run-up to war, as if it was inevitable, and there was nothing that we could do about stopping that war. With the media's full-fledged uh, support for the war, they turned out to be right. Not even the largest anti-war protests in the history of the world could stop the media-endorsed illegal war we are being lied into. So we spoke with David about his veterans' perspective on the ongoing war in Afghanistan and the the upcoming war in Iraq that, again, we were being lied into, while the media was repeating those lies and refusing to give any airtime to veterans like David, and for that matter, any anti-war activist or scholar or perspective that pointed out that we were being lied to and the wars, non, uh, the wars, that of, ter- the wars of terror were n- n- illegal. But the only way you can hear all of that, hear me reveal my social identity and the groups I identify with in hopes that you will do the same, and a veteran opposing the Bush administration's illegal wars on Veterans Day is by supporting This Is Hell and becoming a subscriber to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Jeff Dorchin with a moment of truth, rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Kinda. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, 
If it whines like a fascist, destroy it. All right, seekers of knowledge, in these crazy times when there doesn't seem to be any agreed upon reality, certain things do nevertheless remain recognizable as true. One of those things is what fascism is. Fascism is not woke people trying to make every argument about id poll, LGBTQI, or racial injustice, or equal representation at economically elite levels of society. Those are often distractions from the actual project of breaking capitalist hegemony and bringing the people's material needs into the socioeconomic spotlight, but they're not fascism. It's not fascism to express a desire to have one's identity acknowledged by being addressed with appropriate pronouns, even if the person demanding acknowledgement is overbearing about it. As a 60-year-old Jew who grew up around Holocaust survivors my whole life, who even now lives in a building with one whose family's shtetl in Belarus was wiped out by their neighbors at the urging of the Nazis, who is a member of a shtetl memorial group that maintains testimony, photos, and documents from the attempted erasure of that people, I know what Nazi rhetoric sounds like and what it leads to. What the Nazis, the Spanish Franquistas, and the Italian black shirts had in common was this rhetorical and eventually linguistic trait, fear-mongering. Fear-mongering about deviance of art, gender presentation, women's reproductive freedom, immigrants, great replacement, leftist unwholesomeness, and pollution of the nation with foreign unionizing or anti-Christian values. And since Nazism ended up being the flagship fascism of Europe, we should add, of course, that favorite of Henry Ford, Charles Lindbergh, and Hitler, ginning up the fear of the global Jewish cabal. So it really chaps my hiney when today's copycat fascists try to tell me that leftists are the real fascists, the real thought police, the real censorship goons, the eugenicists, mutilators of children, pedophiles, openers of the border to rapists, and somehow enablers of violence. There is one group that salivates at giving military weapons and military license to police to deal with minority populations and to vigilantes to enforce their morality and national ethos. And that is definitely not leftists. And according to today's fascists, a leftist is anyone to the left of Scott Bayo. It chaps my hide that Glenn Greenwald goes on Cucker Tiresome's Fox News show and aids Cucker with this exact fear-mongering formula. It angers me. It enrages me. It outrages me. I've been writing these little absurd, surreal, super-truth segments to try to have a little fun mocking the insane mangling of facts the ever-more-powerful right-wing propaganda rant machine has been belching out like toxic smoke from a Soylent Green factory, because really... These propagandists are no better than clickbait manufacturers. The people who swallow their mangled facts do so because their BS detectors only work to debunk things they don't want to believe in. So, their favored falsehoods are comparable to a type found in trivial books and TV shows ostensibly factual, telling fairy tales of unexplainable happenings, not unlike a pulpy paperback piece of trash I had when I was a kid, called Stranger Than Science. And I'll get back to those items, 
probably with a more acidic flavor at some point, but right now I'm just furious. And regardless how these midterm elections finally shake out as the returns come straggling in and the media arranges the fragmentary results into some kind of mosaic declaring what worldview is the winner, my fury will not abate and I don't know what to do with all of it. All I've been able to do is try not to ruin what our bitter, blind, broke, bowel-shortened host Chuck is trying to do, which is to flesh out all our understandings of what we are up against as we try to build the kind of world where no one starves in the midst of plenty, no one languishes unhoused in the midst of vacant housing held hostage to the so-called market price. No one is imprisoned without hope. No race or ideology is scapegoated. No one suffers untreated by health care held hostage to its so-called market value. A world where the human tendency to destroy and violate is reined in by the imperative to keep life on Earth alive, diverse, and beautiful. A world where our time is not held hostage to our labor's so-called market value. And the reason I keep saying so-called is that our labor's rightful value is immeasurable. Our value as people and life on Earth's value are immeasurable. And those who want to control them know that if they ever had to cough off what we're really worth, They'd never be able to amass the excess wealth they love to beat us down with. We deserve a better world than this hell. And the fascists are the ones who want to crush our struggle for the world we all deserve. They do it out of fear. They do it out of mental illness exacerbated by the attachment of profit motive to every moment in time, point in space, and iota of thought and action. They do it because they're foolish and greedy and think of life as a contest where the winner is the one who makes the most people his servants. Even as old and laughably unathletic as I am, I'm willing to go out into the streets and fight these fascists. Even if this is hell, it's the only world I've ever lived in, and I'm not going to give it away to these warped, demonic purveyors of cruelty. Now listen to this last part. Get your friends and family to listen to the show and become Patreon subscribers. We are doing our best to enable resistance to these slavers because that's what they are. The fascists see the slavery of others in prisons, in an exploitative economy, in their wars as a right and proper fact of life. The guests Chuck interviews at length and quite perspicaciously have some choice rebuttals to that notion. It all happens here, and everyone should be hearing this. Yes, this is like a pledge appeal. Go thou and evangelize for this show. You've learned from Sebastian's Past Inside the Present. You've learned from Ronaldo's Rotten history. You've learned tangentially about mushrooms from Lindsay, art and literature from Dan, music from all our producers. You've even learned about dumb things like Iron Age frog massacres and fat gay UFOs from me. You know how good it is. You know how good Chuck's long-form interviews are. He's too modest and self-effacing and maybe high to say so, and he may not even realize how good he is. But everyone who's ever been on the show knows how good he is. Rick Perlstein author of Nixonland, called Chuck his favorite interviewer. No corporate sponsors, no ads, entirely listener-supported, this is hell. As they say in, not Fight Club, but the literary blood sport, Right Club, first rule of this is hell. Tell five to seven people about this is hell. 
Second rule of this is hell. Tell five to seven people about this is hell. Violence is not currently an unavoidable necessity. So this show is the best resistance to today's fascism. It never set out to be that, but destiny has called. Destiny rang the doorbell and ran away, leaving a burning bag of fascism on the porch, and someone had to answer. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. First of all, my grandmother in Detroit, she fell for the burning bag on her front porch one time, and I, my, me and my brother watched it, and it was hilarious seeing her step on a flaming bag of poop. Also, oh. now I'm really annoyed at you because now I have to go home and look up perspicacious. Yeah, don't worry about it. All right. It never comes in handy except as a, a big word to use in front of something. <laughs> All right, so we're up against the clock, Jeffy. Great to hear your what voice. Clock? Uh, what I know. clock? The stupid one in front of me. Oh, let me tell you one thing though. All right. Uh, yeah. Oh, look, look at look at the uh, Patreon comments. Sometime. No, really. There's comments on Patreon. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of comments. <laughs> really? And there's like some informative ones too. <laughs> I should definitely look at that then. Thank you very mm-hmm. much for that hot tip. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, stay beautiful. You too. This is not democracy. This is Hell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell, and do we have any new answers? I'm doubting that we do. This week's question from Hell, now that Elon Musk has killed Twitter, how are you wasting your time instead? You're right, we don't have any new responses. The answers I liked most were uh, Tyron S. saying, rereading Richard Seymour's book, and that would be The Twittering Machine. You can find that interview with Richard from 2019 by going to our website, thisishell.com, and searching on his last name, Seymour. Uh, I also liked Fabio saying, trying to figure out how Mastodon works and failing, and I tried to figure out how Mastodon works as well, and I also failed. Mark A. saying, watching reruns of Twitter on MeTV, which I really, I really like that answer. SLS saying, making small talk with the demon on my butt. EatFart69 saying, voting multiple times. Hypocrite Reader saying, the the angels dancing on the head of this pin won't count themselves. And John K. saying, posting more manifestos and screeds on Facebook. Facebook has always been manifesto friendly and always even the longest angriest and allows the, even the longest angriest uh, screeds. So, uh, Dan, I'm going to say this is up to you. Should we go with uh, rereading Richard Seymour's book or watching reruns of Twitter on MeTV? I love over-the-air television. MeTV, please. Yeah, okay, so Mark A., you are the winner of this week's question from hell. You will receive any piece of This Is Hell merchandise that you want. All you have to do is go to thisishell.com, click on support, see all of our stuff. I believe you have one in the past, Mark. I'm not too sure. Or, Mark, you can do what a lot of people are going to be doing, hopefully, and that is just showing up for This Is Hell office hours this evening at Carrie's Lounge, our regular Wednesday meet and drink, a meet and think, that's really a drink and think, and uh, I will gladly give you your piece of merchandise then. Or you just tell us what it is, what piece of merchandise you want, and we'll send it to you in the mail immediately. My answer to this week's question from Hal, now that Elon Musk has killed Twitter, how are you wasting your time instead? 
I'm wasting my time worrying about the results of this week's election while realizing that we're screwed no matter what those results are. Thanks to everybody for replying to this week's question from hell. And this is one I usually ask Dan, uh, you know, who's going to be our guest on next week's show? I have no idea. We've sent out plenty of interview requests again, and we haven't heard back from anybody yet. But you can hear that tomorrow on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisishell, and we will be revealing next week's guests. Thanks to this week's producers, Sebastian Voper, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill. Thanks to Jeff for another moment of truth, Ronaldo for this week in Rotten History, and to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston. Just because, talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, when I will be considering exactly what my social identity is, and we will be sharing an interview with an anti-war veteran on Veterans Day Eve. And tonight, it's going to be, you know, well, today it's going to be around 70 degrees. But by this evening, when office hours roll around at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue from 6 to 10 p.m., it's going to be in the mid to upper 60s. So it's a great evening for hanging out out back in the beer garden around the new fire pit. I hope to see you all there. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>